Hi there and welcome to The Brave, an exploration of resilience in the 21st century. Episode to episode, we uncover how systems, people and places can become adaptable and robust in an age of constant change and upheaval. This week, I've been talking to Sophia Woodley, who has produced a fascinating report on resilience in the heritage sector. Now, a lot of episodes previous to this have focused on personal resilience or resilience within the context of an individual or an organisation. And I think it's really interesting to think about how resilience applies to a wider network of connected organisations. And it's really fair to say that the heritage and cultural sectors have had a rough time in the last kind of eight, ten years. They've been subject to austerity cuts. There's been changes in consumption as things have moved online. And now, obviously, in the current period of lockdown, they're also having to digitise and adapt and work out what they're going to do when the sector hopefully reopens shortly. So we'll dive straight into the interview. It's really, really fascinating. And Sophia is an absolute expert here. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. My name is Sophia Woodley. Um, I'm head of innovation policy and research for Golant Innovation. We're an innovation agency that works across the creative, cultural and public sectors, but mainly in the arts, culture and heritage. We're the enterprise arm of the Audience Agency, which is a national charity that helps cultural organisations increase their reach, relevance and resilience. I'm, I'm here today primarily as um, co-author of a report for Arts Council England about resilience in the cultural sector. I was also co-author of a report for the National Lottery Heritage Fund on resilience in the heritage sector specifically, um, but that hasn't been published yet. And yes, your report really caught my eye because I think when people think of kind of arts and cultural heritage and DCMS and all of that kind of a government public sector place, resilience doesn't really come into it or it's not really an area of focus ever. So the report really kind of caught my eye because it actually started to think about, okay, what levels of resilience is it on an individual level, systemic, organisational? And it, I really enjoyed the bit where you're talking about is resilience even a useful term? to use within this kind of context. So would you mind just um, giving a little bit of kind of background and context to the report, why it was commissioned and what what some of the kind of general findings were? Absolutely. Um, Arts Council England, it's interesting, they have actually been thinking about resilience um, for a while as a concept. I think the background to that is they basically believe that resilient organisations are most likely to be able to deliver their mission. Um, and they're also more likely to give the Arts Council uh, its best return on investment in terms of investing in culture, uh, the more the more bang for your buck, as it were. Um, so they've been thinking about it for a while. They commissioned a study back in 2013 um, by Mark Robinson called Making Adaptive Resilience Real, which I also highly recommend. It's really good. Uh, so this this report that was commissioned um, from us back in 2018, now it was, it was partly about bringing that previous report up to date in terms of the literature. Uh, But it was an exciting project because it wasn't just a literature view. They realized that if they wanted to achieve resilience in the sector, they actually had to involve the sector in thinking about it. So (laughs) it was that question like, do people understand when we say resilience as an organization, does the sector actually have the same understanding we do when we're talking about it. Uh, does the sector agree that resilience is, a, is an important thing? Uh, what are the challenges and the barriers uh, to becoming more resilient? So we went out and delivered this big piece of research. We surveyed over a thousand people and we engaged around a hundred people face-to-face in workshops around the country, whether artists or 
uh, staff of arts organizations or specialists like consultants, accountants, and lawyers. It was really, it was really an incredibly fascinating process because it was a co-design process where we had these conversations. We went away, we thought about it, we brought our findings back to other groups and uh, involved people in reflecting on whether we had it right and what we should, uh, what, sh- what we should say and conclude about all of it. And I'm interested in in the interviews you did with individuals and when you brought up the subject of resilience, especially I'm thinking about artists who don't necessarily think of themselves as resilient or resilience as as a kind of uh, a force within their work. Was that was that a term that resonated with them or did they challenge it in any way? There's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of both. Um, you definitely get people that are quite sceptical about the concept in the sector. There are people who will say, resilience is code for cuts. Resilience is code for austerity. When the Arts Council or another funder talks about resilience, what they mean is, we want you to make do with less money. <laughs> um, and, and so there's some definite skepticism about it. But on the other hand, people say, you know, resilience is inherent to the sector. People are motivated to create whatever the obstacles and that and that stereotype, although it is a stereotype of the starving artist or the writer in their garret flat. You know, there's a reason that these exist, both because the arts is traditionally underfunded and sort of in a way undervalued, but because the sector is so endlessly, endlessly resilient and, and, and willing to keep going despite the obstacles. Yeah, because I I worked for English Heritage kind of during the 2008-2009 period where kind of austerity cuts were starting to be made. And has there been kind of a a legacy from that that was brought up throughout the report? I think think it was definitely something that was very much on everyone's minds, that question of, is this report, in a sense, the prelude to further cuts, which so far it hasn't been, thankfully. Um, but everybody was just a bit a bit wary about it, so that was a kind of a, a starting point. Uh, but once we once we uh, moved past that kind of initial uh, skepticism, what was interesting is that there is in the sector quite a common understanding of resilience, and it's one that that seems to parallel the literature, whether that's literature in ecology or in business or in psychology or what have you. There are these sort of twin understandings of it. One of them you might call bouncing back, which is the kind of more negative bit of like surviving, enduring, getting through the tough times, preserving what you have, that sort of defensive resilience. And then the other kind is this idea of bouncing forward, which is about thriving, evolving, prospering, developing, changing what you do. Um, And it was interesting in any sort of workshop or conversation, if we asked people what is resilience, you basically get these two these two definitions in some combination and when it comes to kind of I guess the behaviors and the aspects that make up resilience because you looked at key resilient behaviors in arts and culture organizations were there any kind of definitive themes there that were coming through Ah, resilient behaviors. Yes, we came up with, we looked at the literature and we came up with a massive list of behaviors that we thought uh, might be might be seen as resilient behaviors and and it was a list as long as your arm i might i must say from recognizing and tolerating risk and failure uh, making the most of your assets planning for different scenarios testing new ideas responding to the needs of audiences long list um and we thought oh people will 
say, well, some of these are important and some of them aren't. The interesting thing was um, people pretty much agreed with all of them. Yes, these are all important, resilient behaviors. Um, what was interesting and what was one of the main findings of the report was that question about are these behaviors, if these are important behaviors for being resilient, and people agreed that they were, are they being put into practice in the sector? And that was where we got a really interesting, really interesting answer. Oh, and could you expand on that a bit more? That does sound interesting. Yeah. So this is basically the responses from this survey of a thousand people that we did. So people said, yes, they're important. We asked them, are you putting these behaviors into practice in your organization? And people said, well, somewhat, somewhat, <laughs> basically. And then we asked them, do you think these behaviors are widely in evidence across the sector as a whole? And basically the response was no. Not really. Uh, that's so that really leads, yeah, that leads you to think if people are, it, it, does it just happen that everyone's own organization is so much more resilient than the sector as a whole? It doesn't seem very likely. Um, and what gave us even more pause when we actually dug into the reason for this discrepancy was it was senior staff in their organizations that were saying yes. In my organization, absolutely, we track performance. In my organization, absolutely, we have consistent processes. But when you looked at the responses for the rest of the staff from those organizations, the, the answer was somewhat different. Oh, that's fascinating because I work in the tech sector and there's a lot of focus on kind of process and optimization and being kind of resilient organizations in very much the same way. And organizations talk a lot about themselves being resilient, but actually when you break it down to the individual level, individuals don't necessarily agree with that in very much the same way. So did you look at kind of individual resilience at all and the gap between, I guess, the individual and the organization? Yes, um, we did think about that. That was um, one of the things that came up a lot um, in the discussions, actually, in the sort of qualitative workshops. Um, this idea that the resilience of the sector is actually depending upon the resilience of individual members of staff, people in the arts, uh, it's not generalizing to say, are overworked and underpaid. Many of them are freelancers. And whether you're looking at the executive who has to work 80 hours a week to keep their organization afloat to the artist who survives by waiting tables is quite a, a big issue if these organizations are actually only able to stay afloat by paying quite low wages or or having people work such long hours. Um, and this was flagged up. I mean, people in the arts have the best will in the world, but there were a lot of organizations, particularly um, I think it was in Liverpool, we had a lot of organizations saying we would just go under if we paid our staff a fair wage. And that is that is concerning. That is concerning for the future of the arts and for and for the future of a, of a just and diverse workforce in the arts. Definitely. And did did diversity kind of factor into any, I guess, of your your sampling or, or your interviews or the way you analyzed the, the responses? Um, diversity in terms of diversity of respondents, um, I think we probably didn't get as much diversity as we as we wanted to in participation, uh, which is something that is 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 often the case in the arts. Um, in a con on a conceptual level, of course, uh, diversity. I think is one of the main underpinnings of resilience, not in a sort of a self-congratulatory, you know, way, but in the way that actually having different standpoints, different experiences, 
redundancy, you know, so that everyone isn't thinking and acting in lockstep is, is really key to resilience, whether you're looking at an ecosystem in a biological sense or whether you're looking at an arts and cultural ecosystem. So I do think it is absolutely uh, essential. Yeah, and I guess that kind of, I had a question about top-down thinking, because that kind of goes back to, you know, managers are reporting that everything's great and wonderful and we're very resilient, but individuals are, are not. Do you think it's still a sector that has quite a command and control style of management and I guess hierarchical organisational structure? And does that impede resilience at all? Oh, that's a good question. I think it really varies. I think some of the larger organisations are very siloed. And you get a situation where it may be hierarchical and it may just be that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing fundamentally. Um, But at the same time, you do very much have an ethos in the arts around participation, around co-creation. There are definitely organizations that are experimenting with human-centered design and involving not just people within their organizations, but outside, you know, with actually audience members or users or customers in envisioning their future. So, and there's a bit of a paradox with the arts, isn't there, uh, and culture and heritage, generally speaking. In, in some ways, it's very radically inclusive. Um, and I think many businesses would, would look at it as being radically inclusive. But yes, in, in, in some ways, you know, there are organizations where the artistic director is like a god. And if the artistic director doesn't, doesn't like it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I've just got images of uh, Devil Wears Prada <laughs> in my head and, and that kind of style of, you know, and, and almost like an absolute kind of figurehead um, deciding everything. And I guess to kind of build on that a bit more, because obviously we've spoken about the impact of austerity and, and cuts and financial pressures. Do you, do you think that if, if let's say, tomorrow, you know, it, the, the funding is quadrupled or, or 10x, would that solve the resilience problems or is it more of a people problem well this takes us back to the question i suppose of 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 what you mean by resilience and we did actually go back to arts council with this and say well when you say you want a resilient sector do you mean that if i came back in 100 years you want to see that all this all the organizations that were operating now will still be operating in 100 years Um, And so you could go, well, yeah, if you give them that much funding and tell them to get on with it, you probably will have stabilized the sector, I suppose, and they'll still be they'll still be afloat. So you might say, yes, that, that solves the problem. But there's a bigger question in there, which is, are these organizations doing good work? Are they responsive to what people want? Are they, you know, all all of all of that other stuff? And money doesn't solve that necessarily. It certainly helps people do do the work and it helps people achieve things. But the question of what they're wanting to achieve and whether it's filling a societal need is is another question. Yeah, because that leads on to innovation, really. And I, I always think that a key part of, of resilience is adaptability and adapting to change. And obviously, technology is one of the biggest driving changes in society at the moment, along with um, the current crisis we are in. And do you, do you think the sector is embracing kind of technology innovation or, or is maybe at risk of being a bit left behind by that at all? 
Ah, uh, technology innovation. Yes, this is this is another part of what we do. So I've seen quite a bit of this. Um, the sector wants to embrace technology innovation. Uh, I think many many staff in the arts, culture, and heritage sector don't necessarily come from a background where they're particularly comfortable with digital. They, you know, they're humanities people or they're arts people, and they have have a basic knowledge. But I think I think people tend to get a bit worried about it. Um, and there are quite a few programs, um, one of which we're involved with now, actually, not National Lottery Heritage Fund is running a program on digital leadership, which will be very interesting to get into. Um, so people are trying, they don't necessarily feel, feel terribly confident about it. Um, but I think that a side effect of this is people often feel that it's just the piece of technology that will solve their problems. If they get to that point, they go, ah, great, we need a CRM system and then we'll have a CRM system and we will be organized. And yeah. we often have to step in and kind of say to people, the system isn't the important thing. Once you know what you want to achieve and how you want to run and what your organization does and what you need to improve, uh, procuring the system will be the straightforward bit. But if you just get if you just get the system, whether it's a digital asset management system or a customer relationship management system, or it's a particular platform, or you suddenly decide that QR codes are what are going to make your museum relevant and exciting, which many people yeah. do, um, that doesn't fix it. So it really, it does actually come back to organizational culture and understanding. Um, and the technology is a tool as it ought to be. Yeah, that, that's a pattern you see across even kind of tech-led organisations that they forget the technology is there to enable people, not to enable more technology. Yes, yes, exactly. And the thing is, cultural organisations are good at enabling people. So when you stop them and get them to think about it, 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 it does sink in. But they need a little bit of hand-holding to get over that fear of, oh, we're not very digital. And they need a little bit of direction to understand that they can do digital and that they can still be all about the people. And actually, that's what's required to make the technological innovation relevant and not just a piece of tech. And just to build on kind of the, the fear concept there, because I, I really was interested in the part of the report that touches on failure. And, and there's some really interesting kind of quotes from survey respondents in there, which you can read in the full report. But, you know, people, people are talking about you almost get ideas funded or new projects funded. You have to prove you're a safe bet. But how does that impact on innovation then if people are just putting forward stuff they think is, or they know is going to work? How do they work outside of that? Mm. Yes, they're, they're very sort of different structures of thinking in a way, this idea traditionally that if you're looking for funding from a big arts funder or heritage funder, you know, you say this is what will happen and this is what the outputs will be and you'll know we were successful because of that. Um, and it has traditionally needed to be very cut and dried, whereas innovation funding, um, we help a lot of people bid for Innovate UK funding. Um, and they ask you to list what the risks are going to be of your project. And people are always nervous about putting in high risks, especially in the arts. Um, but you go, well, look, if you send in this application and there are no high risks, they'll say, well, it's not an innovative project because innovation and risk go together. And I think yeah, that's a lesson that the cultural sector is still learning. And they haven't been rewarded for it because of because of traditional funding structures fundamentally yes and I guess 
that this kind of ties into the fact that I imagine in in the arts and heritage sector that the rewards aren't necessarily the, the same type of rewards you would get in the private tech sector. So I'm thinking of Silicon Valley where risk versus reward, you know, people go out and do venture capital deals and all that type of stuff because they want to get that a thousand X on their investment. But that's just that's not what the arts and cultural sector is there for. It's not there to print money and make money for people. It's there to be a cultural resource. So so almost like how do you define success then within those type of boundaries? Exactly. Exactly. So in a sense, yes, you have to still have the risk, whereas the reward may not seem to be as high as that as that printing money reward. Um, and the interesting thing in the in the culture sector as well is you get there is some fear of success as well as fear of failure. And this came up because there's this idea oh, that's interesting. if if we certainly financially, if we succeed in making enough money, if we if we bring in more through earned revenue, will will funders cut our funding? They'll say, you know, we don't need to give you money anymore. You can earn your mo- your own money. I'm not saying that would happen, but that's always a fear. And then, and then that sort of fear of turning a profit that people in, in the culture sector, the idea of profit is is still a concerning one for many people. You know, they 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 want to stay afloat. They want to have money to fund their programs, but they feel if we actually earn money doing any of it. Is that is, is, is that a sign that we were charging too much? Isn't that a bit uh, ethically ethically dubious? You know, shouldn't we be giving things away for free? So you actually have to get them thinking about the fact that if they can earn money by doing one thing, it means they can subsidize other activities of theirs that will will never turn a profit, and that's not only acceptable but necessary in in a, in an environment of reduced funding. Yeah, definitely. And with kind of, the, I guess, at the moment, there must be such a period of uncertainty, especially if, if you're very public facing, I imagine you're probably shut or you're not able to provide your services. And I know this is a really unknown time, but do you have any thoughts on how, how I guess, the future of this sector is going to look after coronavirus, after lockdown? I... I, I hesitate to look into the crystal ball. I think it will be very different. I think we 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 don't know yet what the what the time scale of the after lockdown will be. I think that's the main question. You know, if it's if it's relatively short term, you can say, well, if there's a vaccine by the autumn and things you know, things go back to normal, then the emergency funding that's being poured in by both Arts Council and National Lottery Heritage Fund may be enough to pull people through. People will come back from furlough and the show will go on, as they say. If it goes on longer than that, it's it's really difficult to speculate. But all we can say is that these, these traits of flexibility and innovation and risk and willingness to experiment and try new things are going to be absolutely essential if... if if the sector is going to be left in any form similar to what it was uh, at the beginning of the year. Certainly. And I think one of the things that, that this this sector always makes me think of is creativity, um, just, just because arts, obviously, and culture and creativity. And I wonder if that actually will be one of the biggest assets in it during this period, because w- what comes next, no one knows. We, we can't look in the crystal ball. Um, but the solutions that help people survive will be the creative ones. So 
I wonder if it's actually in a, in a better position than a lot of industries because there is this pool of creative talent there. Absolutely. I think the cultural sector has a lot of a lot of assets and all of these things that I'm saying about the need to improve need to be based on that understanding of all the things that, that the sector has done right is the creativity, it's the empathy, it's the bonds with local communities, which in many, many cases are very, very strong. It's the sense of um, the sense of social purpose. They're, they're not just in it to make money. They are actually in it to, to benefit society. And I think these facts will bear the sector in good stead. So, yeah, if you'd like to learn more about this and about the work that we do, uh, you can go to our website, which is theaudienceagency.org or subscribe to our Twitter account, which is a Golat Twitter account, at Golat Inov, which I will spell. It's at <laughs> G-O-L-A-N-T-I-N-N-O-V. Uh, we're called Golant because our founder is from a village called Golant in Cornwall. And if you Google for it, you will find the village and you will find us and you will find nothing else. So that's uh, useful. Um, and the report itself is called What is Resilience Anyway? And so if you have a search for that, you can find it on the Arts Council website. Thank you so much to Sophia for coming on and sharing that. That was really, really fascinating for me. And I think it's a sector that has so much to give to other industries. And there's a lot we can kind of learn from working together and that cross contamination of both the kind of resilient side of things, but also the creativity and the kind of doing things for the love of it. So if you want to find out more about The Brave, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We're on all the social channels. You can find us just typing in The Brave or The Brave Listen. You can also find all of our episodes and a bit more about the podcast online at bethanvincent.com. And you can also contact me at hello at bethanvincent.com. I'm always looking for people to come on and share their story, share their work, share their unique perspectives on resilience and finally just to say if you like the show if you like the episode and you want to support us I would be so so grateful if you could leave a rating and or a review on the podcast platform of your choice it just means more people get to find out about us due to kind of algorithmic things and also I get some feedback on what I'm doing but until next time thank you so much stay safe 